Do you think that's a good way forward? No. The reason is basically very simple. Either you set a, a universal basic income that isn't high enough to provide people with a secure reference narrative, or you do, and then the tax rates which you need in order to finance it are so high as to be impractical. Hello there, and welcome to the very first episode of the Oxford PPE Society podcast. We'll be releasing these episodes every Friday at 9am until the end of Trinity term in June, and you can find them via our website, our SoundCloud, or our Facebook page. We hope that you will enjoy them as regular insights into the worlds of philosophy, politics, and economics amidst these uncertain times. I'm Leo Naskow, and this week I'm joined by the esteemed British economist John Kay. John has been active in academia and business for many decades. A former director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies and economist at the Financial Times, he regularly comments on innovative economic ideas like a universal basic income. His book, Other People's Money, plots the route to financial reform and argues why we should take it. This March, he also published Radical Uncertainty with former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King. The book explores a new perspective on how we should approach risk. But I started off by asking him what exactly was wrong with the finance sector and why it was in need of reform. It was increasingly trading not with the real economy, with business and households, but with itself. So that by the time of the financial crisis, most of the assets of banks were the liabilities of other banks, and most of the liabilities of banks were the banks, um, were the assets of other banks. So you had a this essentially inward-looking world in which you had created a huge pile of securities on the back of a relatively small volume of activity in the non-financial economy. When the finance sector is mainly trading existing assets, you have to ask what it's for. I and mean, it's not actually, to any substantial degree, providing funds for new investment. To a very large degree, uh, in debt markets, what was being undertaken was essentially financial engineering, that is restructuring existing loans into ever more complex products. And what was happening in equity markets was almost entirely secondary market trading. In fact, over the last 30 years in Britain and the United States, no new money has been raised from equity markets taken overall. That is, when you look at new issues of shares, they're dwarfed in size by the amounts of shares which have been taken out of the market through share buybacks by companies and through acquisitions which are made for cash. Is that one of the reforms that you would advocate for? Yes, share back buybacks used to be only undertaken in quite limited circumstances. But what happened was much more a change in custom than a change in the law. And a lot of the motivation for share buybacks was generated by the fact that options were granted to senior management, which related to encourage them to look to shareholder returns taking the form of increases in the value of shares rather than paying money out in dividends to shareholders. So that was a major motivation for undertaking share buybacks rather than dividends. 
So do you think reverting towards a system where banks traded less with themselves would tackle risks in a better way and make the system more stable, more resilient? Um, yes, it would. Uh, because the story we were being told up to 2008 was that this trading and secondary market trading and securities was diversifying and enabling risks to be placed where people were best able to bear these risks. In fact, what was happening was people really did not understand the products they were trading. And the typical transaction was one in which somebody who understood bits was sold on to somebody who understood less. I remember very vividly having a discussion in 2006 with someone who worked in one of these banks, in fact, in the division that was responsible for creating these products. And this bank had issued a particularly quizzy product, which was offering 2% above the yield on U.S. Treasury bonds, but actually had the same AAA rating as the U.S. Treasury bond. So you were getting 2% more of interest for, for no risk. And I asked him to explain this product to me. And in the end, I realized he couldn't do it. And this was someone who was someone who was actually responsible for inventing this product. There was nobody in the world who understood what was in this product. What had happened was you reverse engineered a model so that it would go through the models which were undertaken by ratings agencies. You would reverse it, engineer it in such a way that out of the black box would come the AAA rating which you needed in order to sell the product. And this is what you're talking about, where the finance sector is taking the best and the brightest and using them for ends that don't really contribute to genuine growth. Exactly so. When I first uh, taught at Oxford, going into the city was something that was done by people who had good social connections but weren't academically very bright. That changed quite quickly. You moved into the world in which a high proportion of the ablest students wanted city jobs. So how did that happen? You mentioned that it was mainly a cultural shift. How do we get here? There were a whole series of factors behind it. There was new technology that made these products and activities possible. There was globalization, internationalization of capital markets, which meant that American firms you know, big American investment banks arrived in London with a much more professional attitude and a greater willingness to pay high salaries. A finance sector they created which relied less on connections and rather more on mathematics. And there was um, deregulation, which regulations had previously as it were, kept commercial banking and investment banking and asset management and so on separate. After the mid-80s, you saw the creation of financial conglomerates, which combined all these functions. So I suppose lots of people would be resistant to kicking banks with bad practices out, but uh, there seems to be a place for regulation and legal changes to offer some reform. Uh, there is, but we should be careful about that. 
we have a vast array of financial regulation now. It's very extensive, very intrusive, and it's not very effective in achieving its fundamental goals or what ought to be the fundamental goals of the system, which are preserving the security of the system and ensuring that it meets the needs of the non-financial economy. We need regulation, but not the kind of regulation which has been proliferating. Indeed, many of the complex products which I described were actually created to, to get round regulation in the first place. There's something called credit default swaps, which were one of the instruments which played a role, major role in the 2008 financial crisis. A credit default swap is a kind of insurance policy on a loan. And the reason these credit default swaps were invented was essentially to circumvent regulation. Because if you were a bank and you made a large loan to a very safe borrower, you were to provide capital against it based on the size of the loan. If you could categorize this as an insurance product, you were to provide capital against it based on the risk that was attached to, to the loan. And of course, if you're lending to ExxonMobil, it might be a very large loan, but it would be a very low risk. So it's much better to represent it as insurance rather than as lending. And that's just an instance of the ways in which much of the complexity of the system was actually a product of regulation. So you have a regulation almost chasing its tail. But regulation leads to people devising more complex products, and that leads you to devise more complex regulation, and it goes on and on. You talked a lot about sort of going back to the way things used to be done and I think imbuing an ethic of stewardship and faithful agency. Is that sort of something that is specifically sort of about the way things used to be or is the way things used to be not necessarily what we should be aiming for in the future? Well, we can't simply go back to the banking system as it was in, in the 1960s. And in many ways, we wouldn't want to. But we can go back to a much simpler banking system. We don't really need all the secondary market trading of assets, either in the asset management sector or in the banking sector. And the world in which if you wanted to buy a house, you had to go along to have an interview with a, uh, a building society manager, or if you wanted a, a loan for your business, you went and talked to a bank manager who would be in, in a local office, and people actually knew uh, or interviewed at least the people they were making loans to. That actually proved to be a more stable and secure system than the one we created. So do you think these kind of reforms would um, make for less crises in, in the economic system? Um, yes. And, and what, what we also need to do is to separate out essentially speculative trading in assets from traditional banking. And what made the 2008 crisis so bad was that the trading activities of banks threatened to bring down the retail banking side, the money transfer system on which our economies all depend. Is that something that's quite easy to do, separating speculators from investors? 
it's not very difficult to do. What's really needed is, and we are moving to this very slowly actually in the UK, but we've moved towards it, limiting the range of assets uh, in which your deposits, the amounts you hold in your bank account, can actually be invested instead of using these retail deposits in effect as collateral for speculative trading in money markets. So I suppose that's things like ring fencing, which I imagine you're... No, that, that's ring fencing, which um, I've been supporting ever since the financial crisis of 2008. And as I say, we've made some progress in that direction, but only limited progress in the UK because banks fight back against it and almost no progress in the rest of the world, either the US or Europe. So it was the so-called Falker rule in the, in the United States, uh, a Likanen report, as it was described in the European Union, but in all these cases, essentially, effective action was fended off by banking lobbies. I suppose that's part of the problem that is particular in the finance sector, the revolving door between regulators and those who are regulated. So a door that is spinning round one way. People go from regulatory agencies into compliance functions and banks. They don't much go the other way around. And the reason, of course, is that people are paid a lot more to exercise these functions in banks than they are in regulators. In early March, March the 5th, I think, you released your most recent book, um, Radical Uncertainty. I was wondering what your perspective is on risk, uncertainty, the distinction between the two, and how you think this new approach can help us manage and prepare for other crises. There was an old distinction between risk and uncertainty. If you go back a century, uh, in fact, in 1921, Maynard Keynes and Frank Knight issued books. Keynes wrote a book called A Treatise on Probability, Knight, Risk, Uncertainty and Profit. And both of them distinguished what they described as risk, which were things you could represent probabilistically from uncertainty, which you actually couldn't. Now, that distinction was steadily elided over the last, over subsequent 50 years. And in the economics that you get taught nowadays, uh, that risk and uncertainty are treated as essentially the same thing. And both of them equate to volatility. Is that distinction between risk and uncertainty simply two sides of the same coin? For every situation when there is uncertainty, there's a risk that it will go bad. Where is the danger Uh, of getting those two words confused? The way we look at it in our book, which is slightly different from the way Keynes and Knight looked at it, is to say that risk is something which for most people in ordinary language is unequivocally bad. Uncertainty may either be good or bad. You never hear people saying there's a risk I might win the lottery. You don't even hear them saying there's a risk I might not win the lottery because people don't actually expect to win the lottery. But there's uncertainty about the lottery and that might work out well or it might work out badly. There's uncertainty all over the place. There's uncertainty you go to a new, you meet a new friend, you go to a new restaurant, you go to a new place on holiday, or you do these things when you're allowed to, and you don't know what's going to happen. 
may be good, it may be bad. And actually the point Frank Knight made, which is critical, is that it was the existence of such uncertainty, that kind of radical uncertainty, that gave incentives to innovation and was effectively the dynamic of a market economy. You couldn't have had a futures market in iPhones 20 years ago because no one had thought of what an iPhone was. And the way we look at it is the world is uncertain, and it's uncertain essentially because of imperfect information. Now, there's what we call resolvable uncertainty. And you can resolve uncertainty in one of two ways. Either you can get better information and uh, resolve it in that way. I don't know why we keep using this example, but you probably don't know what the capital of Pennsylvania is but you can go to Wikipedia and look it up. So if it matters, you can resolve that uncertainty. And then there's uncertainty which you can describe by a probability distribution. You can toss a coin, and you know that the probability, if it's a fair coin, that it will come up heads as a half. So that's another resolvable uncertainty by resolving it probabilistically. There are some things that you can described probabilistically in these kind of ways. What we argue in the book is that actually people have greatly exaggerated the scope of this kind of probabilistic reasoning. What does that approach mean for decision-making? Quantifying uncertainty is ingrained in our economy and way of life. Yes, so we ask in the book, how do real people deal with uncertainty? And we argue that the way they think about it is you frame what we describe as a reference narrative. I tell a story about a meeting I once went to at the Treasury between a group of government economists and a group of defense contractors. And the defense contractors were people who engaged in very large product projects to build new aircraft or missiles or things like that. And... Uh, in their perception, there was a lot of risk attached to that kind of work. Treasury economists who had all done economics degrees and many of them finance courses as part of these degrees, told them that the risks associated with these activities were perfectly diversifiable and therefore didn't need to be rewarded at anything above the government bond rate. And you can imagine that the business people looked at the economists, wondering in what kind of planet did these people come from. And I realized, thinking about that afterwards, that that was because they just meant different things by risk. For the defense contractors, they had a reference narrative in which this project worked out broadly as it was intended to. And risks were things that might go wrong with that. For the uh, for the economists, on the other hand, uncertainty was a probability distribution. Uh, it was a dispersion around a mean. It was volatility. They were just meant different things by the same word. And that's why I think it's important to distinguish risk and uncertainty in these senses. So how can people that use things like a p-value adapt to the reference narrative approach? How can they use it to make better decisions? Well, I think what, we, what we're learning there is that storytelling is a very important part of people's lives. People don't think probabilistically. 
they think in terms of stories. And that that's actually the only way we have of dealing with a rather complicated environment. So whether we're talking about business decisions or your personal lives, or we're talking about financial planning, in all of these, you create some kind of realistic reference narrative. This is what you want to happen. This is how things would work out. And you have to do that in a realistic kind of way. And then you have to ask yourself, what are the risks, the things that might jeopardize or derail that reference narrative? And then you want to ensure that your basic strategy, again, whether it's a personal, uh, your personal career plans, your personal financial strategy, or your business strategy, that all of these things are robust to um, the risks which you've identified. In a sense, what we're doing is we're legitimizing the way thoughtful people actually think about uncertainty and saying that economists have rather gone off the rails by believing that they can formalize in probability distributions things that can't actually be treated in that kind of way. Towards the end of the book, you draw a comparison between Denmark, where there's not much risk, but there's lots of welcome uncertainty, and to Syria, where there's immense risk. Why do you like that comparison, and what insights do you think it offers? I mean, the point of that comparison is to say that if you have managed to reduce risk, uncertainty is something you, you can welcome. So you can be innovative, and you can take, as it were, small-scale risks, uh, which is really what successful entrepreneurs typically do. I mean, Bill Gates obviously was taking a risk when he set up Microsoft, but the truth is it wasn't a risk that jeopardized his reference narrative. His father was a wealthy attorney. He'd been to Harvard. Uh, even if Microsoft hadn't worked out, he wasn't going to be wondering where his health care was going to come from, where his next pay paycheck would be. If you have a secure reference narrative, you can afford to take risks uh, in, your, in your daily life, or you can embrace uncertainty. That's the way we want to phrase it, manage risk, and then you can embrace uncertainty. And uncertainty is what makes life interesting, what makes life fun. We talk about Groundhog Day, in which Bill Murray lives the same day over and over again. And it's so boring and frustrating that he tries to commit suicide in the end, but he can't do that because that, that isn't in the repeated strip. You know, eliminating uncertainty isn't fun. It's a really enjoyable comparison. Um, I think one way lots of people like to secure the reference narrative, as you say, is through a universal basic income. It'll give you sort of stability, you're able to pay rent and buy foods and things like that. Do you think that's a good way forward? No. The reason is basically very simple. Either you set a, a universal basic income that isn't high enough to provide people with a secure reference narrative, or you do... And then the tax rates, which you need in order to finance it, are so high as to be impractical. That's the, the fundamental intractable flaw about this idea. So I suppose the former um, 
situation that you're talking about, uh, whereas it offers something but not enough, is that not an improvement on a current situation that we are in today? No, all right, because the only way you pay for this is you substitute for other for other benefits. Uh, I mean, if you look at some of the proposals for a universal basic income which have been made, um, you're replacing the existing welfare system, for example, uh, by paying everyone £80 a week. But £80 a week isn't actually enough to live on, so that people who are pensioners, people who are on receiving housing benefit, people who don't have a job, they don't have enough to live on. On the other hand, you're also paying that to people who manifestly don't need it. The non-working wives of investment bankers, for example. The way around that obstacle is a negative income tax, which you've been more favourable for. Uh, now, negative income tax is really just the same as a basic income tax. I mean, if you if you look at the algebra uh, of it, you'll see that they amount actually to pretty much the same thing, uh, and they have the same problem. But the the way around it actually is you start uh, discriminating between people's circumstances. One obvious question which everyone listening to this ought to be asking would be how would student be treated under a, a universal basic income? 80 quid a week wouldn't be enough to pay people's maintenance, far less uh, enable them to pay student fees. Well, you can cope with that. You have special provisions for students. It's not enough for people who are retired to live on, okay? So you have an enhanced income from pensioners, and so on and so on and so on. And you end up with a system that looks very much like the rather complicated system we have at the moment. And that's not surprising. It isn't very complicated because of malign intentions. It's very complicated because to strike a balance between giving people enough to live on and maintaining tax levels which are tolerable and to stay some kind of incentive to work is very difficult and very complicated. Do you think the idea of a negative income tax or universal income, despite the cost obstacles, will become more mainstream in the next coming years, particularly with um, some of the measures that have been introduced in response to the coronavirus pandemic? It will look a bit like it for, three, for the next three months, actually. But that will also make the point that we will be adding several hundred billions to the national debt in that period. Now, we can do that for a three-month period. It's not comfortable, but we can do it. We can't go on adding it at that rate indefinitely. The same is true of the so-called experiments which people have conducted with universal basic income. Uh, you can afford it if you pay it to a small number of people for a limited period of time. That doesn't mean it's feasible as a system taken as a whole. The reasons that people favor or are interested in a, a UBI are still there, technological change and things like that. Do you think those reasons will become more pressing over the next few years? There are really two reasons for people being enthusiastic about it. One is a recognition that the existing benefit system is very complicated 
and it would be much better if we could simplify it. And that's true, and there's some scope for simplifying it, but for the reasons I described, simplification isn't that easy because you have to strike a balance between a variety of factors giving people in different circumstances enough and maintaining tax rates at reasonable levels and not paying lots of money, public money out to, to people who don't need it. The other reason is that they believe that there's going to be large unemployment resulting from changing technology. That's an interesting idea and one that people have been talking about from, for 200 years. They've always been wrong so far. There's no evidence now that this time is any different. And I think I'll wait and see to see if this happens before advocating radical policies to, to deal with it. What would your response be to people that say it would be affordable because it would make people more productive, more people would start businesses, more people would do things like that? Show me the evidence. It would have to be very dramatic, that effect, to make people more productive. But why do we think that's going to happen? You know, we talked in our earlier discussion about, as it were, Bill Gates dropping out to set up Microsoft. Do you think paying him $80 a week would have made a difference to that? But it might encourage more people to take that leap. Possibly. I'd be foolish to say that nobody would do that. But actually, to do that, if you're someone of the kind of abilities that that guy had, you need a lot more security than that to do it. You know, there are, there are many better ways of encouraging people to set up businesses than that. And that comes back to where we began, which is that that's what our financial system uh, should be doing, and in some respects is doing. You know, we do have quite an active venture capital sector, for example, and that's far more relevant uh, to the problem of encouraging people to set up businesses than is this kind of proposal. Do you think a venture capital sector is the best way to support businesses? It gets criticised quite a lot for starting with businesses in their infancy and then sort of leaving them and leaving, taking them for a few years and not concerned about the long run. Yeah, and that, that's a very fair point. And there, there is a problem in that venture capital people are typically looking for exits three, five years down the track. We need to do a lot more in the way of providing um, long-term patient venture capital. Kind of goes back to what we're talking about at the beginning in terms of um, secondary trading and financial markets. Basically, we need the institutions, which are the main providers of funds to asset managers, to take a much longer-term view of their investment proposal ideas than they typically have done. How do you advocate changing the culture and the incentives in the industry? I think that's a matter of education and bullying and the like. And what we've done over the last 50 years in business, around business, is we, we've created very destructive shareholder value-oriented rhetoric, uh, which is about short-term share price maximization rather than asking what are the long-term competitive advantages and competitive positions of these businesses. That's a change in rhetoric, which actually 
much of the blame goes back to what people in the academic world, Keynes said a long time ago, practical men who hear voices in the air uh, are often the slaves of some defunct economist. And there's a lot of that going on here. Recently, do you see changes in that respect, like the business roundtable sort of rejecting the idea that shareholder returns are the, the primary objective? That's certainly an advance. The, the trouble is that it's not a thought-out story as to what the role of business in society is. You know, there's quite a lot of greenwashing going on, for example, in this. I can't ever go to a conference now without business people uh, giving lengthy spiels about how concerned they are about climate change. That's a big issue for some businesses, isn't for most. What we really should be concerned about is ensuring properly responsible business in, a, in, in the broader sense. In a pharmaceutical industry, for example, that is, gives more attention to finding new drugs rather than uh, marketing old drugs, or worse, putting up the prices of old drugs, or worse still, selling them to people who shouldn't be taking them. I suppose that's the message, not radical new economic ideas, but a consideration of radical uncertainty and radical ways of financial reform. That's right. Uh, the topics we've been discussing all sound very different, but they actually all fit together when you start thinking about them in this kind of way. 